get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade. It's wonderful to be here with you on such a special day. This is really kind of the kickoff of the second season of the Church Politics Podcast, something Justin and I started in, uh, I think, about May, because uh, we thought that... Uh, uh, what was needed was an informed, experienced, faithful Christian voice in these difficult political times, in these difficult times uh, uh, in the history of our country. And so, uh, so we've been, uh, I've been blessed to be able to talk with Justin every week for the last six months for this podcast and excited to kick it back, back off. And we just, uh, uh, we cover issues of the day through a Christian lens, uh, again, holding to, in the spirit of the AM campaign, uh, biblical fidelity and social justice. And so really glad to be sharing the kickoff of the second season with, with uh, all of you. Yeah, and my brother here is, is very uh, modest uh, because this is a, a very important person. You know, the, AN, the, uh, the Church Politics Podcast and also the AND Campaign, we are very serious about making sure that Christians are informed. We want you to make informed decisions because anybody can get on Twitter and get on Facebook and start yelling and start saying a bunch of stuff where they've done no research. And so what we want to do is be a resource for you to say, I actually am familiar with the issues. Not only am I familiar with the issues, but I'm familiar with the issues from a biblical point of view. You can go a lot of different places and get spin, right? You can go to the right and get spin. You can go to the left and get spin. What we're trying to do is give uh, Christians an opportunity to get their news in a way they understand and in a way that connects to the gospel. Uh, The reason why Brother Ware is somebody that I really wanted to do this with is this is a brother who's been in politics in a serious way for a while. Uh, Brother Ware actually did faith outreach for the Obama campaign. Uh, Once the Obama, once they won, uh, uh, once he got into office, he worked in the Obama administration. Uh, so this is someone who knows, who's been around politics, who's seen it uh, at a high level and understands the dynamics that go into it. And so we have some very exciting conversations coming up for you. I'm really excited about this event. Again, I'm Justin Gibney. I'm the uh, co-founder of the Ann Campaign, uh, you know, and, and, and love partner up, up with my brother right here just to talk about politics. Now, usually when we record this show, uh, my brother right here is in D.C., so he's on Capitol Hill, he's on K Street, and I'm the one here in Atlanta. We're actually doing a live recording of the podcast right now, and I want everybody out there to know that today we are in Atlanta. We're in Atlanta, Georgia at Renovation Church. Go ahead. As you just heard, it is pastored by Leon Crump, who is a brother who is a true leader. What I like about today is not only are we talking about the past and we're celebrating the life of MLK, but we're also, there are several up-and-coming faith leaders who are on that same trajectory of really trying to change things. And we get an opportunity to go out and march uh, with them, and so it should be great. Uh, so we are both here. This is our second annual uh, MLK Day celebration. Uh, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to give you all a political outlook for 2018 for, from a Christian point of view. 
Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about culture. We'll have Show Baraka step up here. But we want to tell you what to look out for this year. We won't be able to cover, cover everything. But we want to give you some things that you should be looking out for, that you should be paying attention to. So we're going to have some substance. And then we're going to go out there and march and have some solidarity. We want you all sharing this on social media. The hashtag is March with and. So make sure you're sharing pictures and all those things. We want people to know that the body of Christ in Atlanta got to together today to really talk about the issues and talk about solutions. Now, it's important also for those who aren't here and those who are here as well to know Atlanta is a very serious city with a very serious legacy. I mean, not too far from here, you had Rich's Department Store, where brothers like Lonnie King and Julian Bond from the Atlanta Student Movement staged there some of the first sit-ins for the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, a few blocks from here is the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Martin Luther King gave his first sermon. Not too far from here as well is, is where Booker T. Washington gave the Atlanta Compromise in 1895. And just up the road is where Spike Lee filmed School Days at Morehouse Spellman and Morris Brown. The list goes on and on. We could talk about Maynard Jackson. We could talk, talk about Ralph David Abernathy and on and on. Uh, and we're going to get into those things, but we should be proud of the legacy that Atlanta has. And right now, Atlanta, Atlanta is known for many things. But I think it should be the objective of many of the people in here to once again have Atlanta be known as the city for cross-bearing Christians. Yeah. I know that's the goal of the AND campaign, and we're dependent on all of you to help bring us back there. So let's get into the first issue. I know we're going to talk about the wealth gap. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the wealth gap? So these are the, this is the first conversation we're going to have, a, the serious wealth gap in the United States. Take it from there, brother. Well, look, in uh, last year, the wealth gap has reached um, historic highs. So the top 1% uh, own 38.6% of the wealth. It's a th think about that. And it's important in a, in a Christian context, it's important to, um, it, th th this isn't about class warfare. This isn't about, uh, we want people to flourish and if people are earning money, that's a good thing. What's happened though, is the income growth in this country uh, is disproportionately favoring the wealthy. It wasn't always this way. We treat this as inevitable that the rich are going to get richer at a greater pace than the poor are just able to make it. In 1980, it was flipped. So in 1980, uh, uh, income was growing more among the poor and the lower and the middle class than among the rich. Now it's completely opposite, just over the course of 35 years. And we have to ask, uh, as citizens, as Christians, it, it, it's it's funny just in the way and the issues for which people take uh, hold themselves accountable and those which they say, oh, this is just the way it is. And this is one where people always want to obfuscate responsibility. Oh, this is just the way the economy works. Maybe things will turn around, but there's really not anything we could do about it. Uh, when, again, we could just look to 1980 uh, to see uh, that this isn't the way a healthy economy is going uh, is going to work. Yeah, and we know there'll always be some distance. And just to put some numbers behind what Brother Weir is saying, uh, right now, according to a Pew Research re uh, Research Report, upper income families. So an upper income family is a family that makes 125,000 plus. They hold 75 times the wealth of a low income family, which is a family that uh, makes about 42,000 or below. 75 times, okay? So in 2007, it was 40 times. 
In, two, in, uh, in 1989, it was 28 times. So this isn't a scale where we're all going up together. It's one where some are going up and some are staying the same or actually going below where they were before, and that's problematic. Something, Brother Weir, I think we need to talk about when we have this conversation is really the impact that we're still seeing from the 2008 economic collapse. Uh, because there are a lot of families that are still feeling that impact. And unless you've been broke before, uh, you may not understand how hard it is to catch up, uh, that it takes years to catch up. And sometimes, as we're seeing, we're a decade out. It can take a decade for you to catch back up. Uh, this was a devastating economic collapse. Uh, so here's some of the numbers from that. Uh, 55 million jobs were lost. So 55 million people lost their jobs. These folks didn't necessarily get their job back the next year. Some of these people were out of work and are still out of work chronically. But here's the, here's the kicker, too, is there was $3.4 trillion in real estate wealth that was lost. A lot of that real estate wealth came from middle class people who had predatory loans, right? Uh, to me, that is one of the, I mean, when you talk about what's happening to the middle class right now, you have to go back and you have to have a conversation about the loans they were receiving and all of those things and how they weren't bailed out, although others may have been bailed out. These are conversations that we have to have, and we have to have them in a real way. Um, so people are still struggling. When we talk about this wealth gap, it's not to say that uh, we, we need to uh, completely uh, turn to socialism or something like that. It's not, that's not necessarily the answer, but the answer is to be thoughtful about it. Uh, the answer is to make sure whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, that your representative is actually recognizing that this is a fact not to accept that all oh, this isn't happening, because a lot of times what happens is we, we just pretend it's not happening at all. So I just wanted to point out a few of those numbers and, and, and talk about the fact that a lot of this goes back to 2008 with that economic collapse. Yeah, and there are a lot of concerns that the recently, taxed, uh, the recently passed tax plan uh, that President Trump signed will actually exacerbate inequality uh, and uh, that it uh, does a lot to cut the corporate tax rate does a lot to help pass through entities uh, uh, and, and those kinds of things, uh, but but it 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 is not progressive tax reform, and by that I don't mean uh, a political ideology. I, I mean it's 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 regressive, uh, and so we're going to see this play out. I, I do think it's better. It's uh, tax reform. Uh, uh, there, there are going to be some short-term benefits, uh, as we've talked about on the podcast before. Uh, what I'm concerned about is it's a $1.4 trillion uh, package that's going to have to be paid for at some point. Uh, and the concern, as you have said this whole time, is that tax reform is going to lead to cuts in uh, important se social safety net programs. And so uh, uh, cutting taxes is great. But if the end game or if the result is cutting programs that keep people afloat, um, th th then the bottom's going to fall out. Yeah, that's the question. How is this going to be paid for? And, and, and what really makes you ask that question is that, okay, this passed through the Republican Party, but you got people like Senator Corker to sign on. Senator Corker is what you call a deficit hawk. So there had to be some conversation with him to say, we're going to make sure that this doesn't explode the deficit. But if we're going to get talk about taxes and the tax plan, I do want to make sure that we're not just talking about it in the way that we hear everywhere else. Because like everything else, taxes, the conversation about taxes, has really been, because of polarization, has really been dumbed down, right? So you have people on the right that say tax is good, and then you have people on the left that say tax is bad. And the truth of the matter is it's a lot more complicated than that. 
There are a lot of other things that play into it. So as a Democrat, I can't just look at a tax cut um, and say that's terrible. Because at times, and we've both been in government, at times there is waste in government. There are things that we are paying for that we don't necessarily need to be paying for. And sometimes we do need to be a little slimmer at how we go about things. But on the other side, any cut is just not a good thing either. You have to look specifically at what programs are going to be affected. And one of my issues with this tax plan, and the jury's going to be still out, because one of the things that this does is it, t it takes the Republican hypothesis. It takes that Paul Ryan hypothesis, that trickle-down economics, that if we that if corporations have more money, they will actually invest more. Maybe that happens. But this is going to be the test. And so it, it's, it's one thing to talk about it in theory. We're going to see if that's actually the case and this actually trickles down. That's what everyone should really be watching for. But one of my issues with this initially was how is it going to be paid for? Because you don't just get deficit hawks on board with this type of tax cut and not have some cuts in mind. So the fear is that there may be some cuts to um, there may be some cuts to entitlements, things of that nature. The jury is still out because maybe indeed corporations do actually invest and this is true and they don't just kind of keep the money and not, and not only invest in, in people, so upper management, but actually people in lower income jobs and that's really going to tell the tale. So I want to be open. I don't want to give people a conclusion because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. I'm not an economist. But that's what we should look for. So today we're going to be talking a lot about what we should look for. When I talk about this tax plan, I really want to see, is that trickle down going to happen? Or is it going to feed down to some people who are lower incomes? Uh, you know, I think another economic trend, I know we're going to move to foreign policy, uh, but another economic trend we're going to see is, uh, I think, growing fear, anxiety, and hopefully proactive steps uh, to to reconcile ourselves to automation and what automation is going to do to our economy. Uh, right before uh, the Obama administration left in 2016, they released a report that uh, uh, suggested that we needed to invest more heavily in job training, particularly in industries that will be affected by automation. I know it's a major concern. Everybody from uh, you know, Barack Obama to uh, J.D. Vance, uh, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance has decided to focus much of his effort now on automation. Uh, and uh, uh, this is another issue where uh, sort of the efficiency of a free market economy sometimes butts up against human flourishing if we don't address if we don't address some of the consequences of that. Uh, and so uh, there has been talk, uh, actually starting on the conservative end. So Milton Friedman, but also MLK talked about a universal basic income. Uh, this is something that. Uh, uh, it actually cuts across partisan lines. So you'll find Democrats who think this is an awful idea, and you'll find Republicans who think it's a great idea, and vice versa. But uh, UBI is going to be a big discussion, I think, in 2018, just as we try and reconcile ourselves to, um, to, to some of the changes in economy and the workforce that are going to start hitting us more, more profoundly. Yeah, and I think this conversation, I'll, I'll, and we, you know, this conversation kind of gives us the opportunity to beat up on both sides a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, because some, an exception that I did take to some of the Democratic administrations and some of their policies were moving too quickly to the future mm -hmm. when the future wasn't quite there yet. That's right. Right? So you shut down coal, you shut down all these industries by regulation, but you don't necessarily give these people, all these people in all of these towns, a transition plan. Mm -hmm. 
right? So we can say the future will hold that uh, automation and artificial intelligence will run everything. But I think one of the things that your administration could have done a little bit better is slow down, not be so futurist, because we don't know exactly what's going to happen, and make sure that a lot of people who are being left behind by kind of this globalism actually had a plan to move forward. I think Democrats could have done a much better job with that, because what you saw was regulations coming down very harshly, no transition plan, and you saw a lot of towns, coal towns or whatever, actually being swept up and, and taken away, people's jobs being taken away, with no plan and no, nothing to give them. And so we can sit back and we can be elitist or we can be just uh, uh, incompassionate and say, well, why are you guys mad? You guys are always angry. What are you so angry about? Why did you vote for Trump? Why did you do this? Not realizing that when for generation after generation, if, if this has been the industry you're in and it's abruptly shut down and taken from you, that's something that's a, that's well, a big deal, right? Well, so it's not just here. This is a common... Uh, temptation of progressive thought, which is to be so confident in the future um, that that uh, that they they forget about the present. They that they're they're working so hard in sort of a utopian mindset that they think, oh, once we get there, it'll be good. So whatever costs happen on the way there, that's fine. That'll it's work. It had it, to exactly. They left behind, but it was going to happen anyway. Exactly right. And so it's it's. Uh, you know, humility plays a big role. It's not just for private relationships and personal interactions. Humility actually plays a plays a role in politics. So even if you even if you're set, and even if we're set in our activism, even if we 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 know what's what's right and we have an idea of what's right, uh, always take uh, in regard uh, those people. And there are always going to be people who are going to be taken, who are going to be hurting because of the direction you want to take. And that's what it means to be uh, mindful towards the common good. You're not just worried about your, your idea of what's best. You're, you're bringing along folks who uh, may not be the primary beneficiaries of whatever policy you're, you're advocating for. Yeah, and, and, and one thing we know is that what, to whatever level uh, this actually changes our economy, it's going to be a significant change at some point. Um, and, and the thing that I would refer to is kind of 19th century industrialization, right? Where production really shifted from small towns to uh, small towns and farms really to factories, right? And so there were a lot of people that were left behind in that conversation. And as technology advances, it tends to make some traditional jobs obsolete, right? So some jobs just aren't going to be there anymore because there's not as much of a need for them. And that's what's called uh, disruptive innovation. So when we see whole industries kind of disappearing because they're obsolete, that's innovation kind of disrupting the landscape, and we want to have that conversation. The, the question that we have to answer, the question that I think our policy has to answer is, will robots and artificial intelligence take a, a, significant, take a significant number of jobs, and how soon? Right. Um, at some point, is our striving for efficiency, is efficiency the number one thing we need? Right? Because we all know that every company wants to be as, fit, as efficient as possible. Well, if top efficiency comes with robots and artificial intelligence and nobody has a job, That's right. then at some point we may need to shift the paradigm. I don't know where that goes, but these are questions that we have to answer. But there are Oxford scholars and others who are looking at how many jobs may disappear based on, on this stuff. And some are saying up to 50% of jobs face automation, not tomorrow. 
but in the future, there's an Oxford uh, a research project that said almost 50% of jobs face automation in the next uh, several decades. Yeah. This is a conversation we have to have. And so when we're talking about this technology, one of the things that you can think about as an example is self-driven cars, right? What do self-driven cars do to the taxi industry? What do they do to the trucking industry? Is it something that's worth the efficiency that it brings with it? And something that scares me, and I'm not an expert on this, so I'm not trying to be alarmist, but with automation, especially when you're talking about cars and all those things, with all this hacking, are we really comfortable <laughs> not being in control of what we drive and really not being comfortable of our transportation? I mean, it's a real question. Well, yeah. If someone gets a hold of the system and the grid, what happens from there? And perhaps mm -hmm. we need a computer scientist or someone to answer that, but it's something that I hope somebody's thinking about and when we talk about automation and all these things, we need to have a conversation about ethics. Yeah. How do we expand ethics to say That's what people right. should do and what people shouldn't do within these conversations? Now, I'm going to hand it to you in a second, but let's just look at what some of the experts are saying. So you have uh, Reed Hoffman, who is the chairman of LinkedIn. And Reed Hoffman is basically saying this isn't as big immediately as people think. He says that, uh, you know, no, he said the thing that keeps automation from being as bad as we think is that a lot of these things have man-machine combinations. And so there has to be a human being running these machines. Now the question would be to him, well, even if there's one human being running that machine, it's still taking the job of 10 other people. And so what his response would be, I believe, is this actually creates other, people just go to other jobs. And so yes, it may get rid of a couple jobs here or there, but people will just go to other jobs and the example that he uses is agriculture. So at one time, 41% of American employment was through agriculture, uh, making food. Um, now it's down to 2%. Now you could think that every job just disappeared and everyone was out there starving, but no. What people did is they just went to other jobs. Uh, but but I'll just add, it takes, it takes a big public investment and public commitment to to help people move to other other jobs and lines of work, so that's why you're, you know we're seeing an in increased focus on uh, STEM. That's why we're seeing. Um, that's why there are calls for uh, 21st century job training programs. That we can't just uh, uh, sort of. Um, that actually, if if the public and if our economy is going to make this change, it's not just on the individual to somehow uh, uh, find a way to change. But actually, uh, if 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 people fail because of these changes, our nation will fail, and it requires a national commitment to, to, to help with that transition. Absolutely, and the next conversation we have to have about this is what does this do to our educational system? How do we train people to be ready for the jobs that they need to go into? Let's be honest, uh, a lot of people that we know have degrees that just aren't paying them as much as they should be or just not allowing them to keep up with, uh, with the market. And so at some point, uh, we're going to have to get clear-eyed and not be so focused on partisanship to say, wait, yeah, I hear you, politician, you want to point me to the other side and tell, tell me how bad they are, that's cute. What is your policy? How are you going to fix the fact that most of the millennials out here have so much uh, debt from school that they can't buy a car, they can't buy a house, they put off marriage, and all of these things. So at some point, we have to say, I don't want to hear any more demonization of the other side. Yes, I know they're terrible. Great. That's not what I need from you. I need you to tell, you, you to tell me what's your policy when it comes to student loans. And if you can't tell me that policy, you see, what we do is we make people's job too easy. If all I have to do as a politician or a political leader is say, hey, 
Those Republicans or those Democrats, they are terrible. Don't do anything they tell you to do. Everything they say is terrible. And if that's all we need to be motivated to go out and vote and to go out and do what they need us to do and to give money to them, then we're cheating ourselves. Uh, someone once said that you get the leadership you deserve. And so if we think our leaders aren't doing what we need them to do, then we need to look at ourselves. If you want to fall for the okie doke and always be worried about partisanship, I'm telling you, that's a game. And so that's not our main concern. Our main concern is the policy. And so I test my friends all the time. I'll send them a policy from a Republican. I'll send them a policy from a Democrat just to see what they'll say about it. And usually they'll say, well, I don't like that person. Or I don't, you know, I, I didn't agree with them being put where they were. And I said, that wasn't the question. What I'm asking you about is policy. And so as Christians, are we going to fall for the okie doke? Are we always going to kind of be pushed with the wind and the rhetoric and the talking points? Or are we going to make them really serve the people? We can talk about party, but if we're overly concerned with party all the time, we're missing the point. And let me tell you, the only people that benefit from that are not us, right? It's, 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 it's the political professionals, right? The people who create the rhetoric. The, they, they spend millions of dollars on making sure that the wording of what they say gets you to do what they tell you to do uncritically. Now, this goes back to biblical times because we know that when Daniel was with Nebuchadnezzar, what did he try to do? Nebuchadnezzar tried to indoctrinate him with his wine and with his meat. He, he wanted him to get to a point where he didn't think critically about what he said, that he loved Nebuchadnezzar because what he had given him and that, and, and that he had shared with him, right? We have to see past any of those type of things and really look to the source and say, I will not defile myself by having conversations that aren't focused on the policy and what's really going on. I don't care what you give me, if it's not something I'm supposed to have, hmm. or if it's not adding to the better of other people, yeah. I'm not gonna talk about that right now. I wanna focus on the real things, but it starts with us. And so, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna respond to those things? But I don't wanna give up your conversation. Got off on a little bit of a rant, but I don't wanna give up your conversation about, about universal basic income. Uh, because there are a lot of conversations about that, and Elon Musk from, from Tesla uh, and other tech leaders have really endorsed universal basic income. And so basically what this universal basic income is, is that every citizen that's low income will receive a basic salary. So there's no strings attached, and Canada is actually working on this where they give, I think, 17 to 20,000. Uh, it's a pilot program, but they're giving 17 to 20,000 every year to certain groups, uh, no strings attached. I'm not a huge fan necessarily of this, and I actually would like to talk to Cho Barack about this because he actually gave a, uh, he just preached on, uh, I think it was the, the ministry of, of work or theology of work or something like that. And I think we have to be careful. I'm all for entitlements. I'm all for making sure that people have a place to land when they hit hard times and they hit a fall, they hit a setback. The issue with universal basic income is if I can be comfortable and not work, there's a dignity problem there. So I'm not even worried about the economics That's of it right. or saying, you know, you're lazy. I'm not, I don't, I'm not getting into that. But dignity comes from work. Right. And if we have a society where you don't necessarily, there's no incentive to work because you have this basic income, I love to help people. I want everybody to be comfortable, but that's a dignity issue because you can have basic income and not have any dignity and be off doing all type of different mm -hmm. things. I'm not sure that's helpful. Um, so the jury's still out on that. What, what are your thoughts? No, I, I agree, and you know, something that we could bring to the table as Christians is often these policy solutions come out of uh, 
a, a sort of technocratic outlook. But Christians don't view people as instruments. We view them as beings uh, endowed by the dignity of being made in the image of God. And so uh, whether we're talking about this, whether we're talking about automation, a Christian should constantly, consistently assert in a political culture that dehumanizes people, we should assert the, the divine dignity of the human person and all that that encompasses. And so the, I think the UBI, uh, the, 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 uh, the UBI uh, attacks the right problem. And I think that there are, you know, uh, you know we had, uh, we've had welfare reform at the state level and the federal level that, uh, that emphasizes work. Uh, you know, there, there may be some, uh, some ways, especially as a transition uh, during this time of automation, during this time of sort of uh, a vocational transition, there, there may be a way to uh, a, a UBI that that um, that that uh, finds ways to promote work. Uh, Maybe a feasible a feasible situation, but we always need to be uh, listen. Uh, Political history is rife with people who thought they were uh, addressing a problem and they only exacerbated it. Uh, and so that's why Christians, uh, we don't put our faith in political ideology. We don't put our faith in. Say that again. Say we that don't again. put our faith in political ideology. We don't put our faith in political programs. Uh, the the kingdom of God will not be ushered in by a Democratic or Republican Party platform. Uh, uh, and, and we can always, always keep that in mind. You know, people, uh, the, 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 the phrase, uh, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice has become like a political slogan uh, lately. But if you, if you look at how King used that phrase, first of all, uh, he was quoting an abolitionist minister from almost a century earlier, Theodore Parker. Theodore Parker said this, he said, uh, Jefferson thought about what God thought of slavery, and he trembled. Soon all of America will tremble. And then King invoked that same phrase, but he, he wasn't talking about political solution. He, he said, we worship a God who Caesar thought he had all the stuff in his control, but Jesus Christ uh, was born, died, and was resurrected, so that even uh, uh, Caesar's dates, even A.D. and B.C., even the calendar would be judged not by Caesar, but by Jesus. And, he, and it was only after he talks about uh, that we worship the God of the, of the empty tomb uh, that he says, and then the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That actually is Jesus that's bringing the kingdom to us, not us bringing the kingdom to Jesus. <laughs> Is that a sermon, brother? I think I just... <laughs> oh, oh, man. That was good. It's King Day, man. That was good. That was good. I, I'm not mad at it. I am not mad at that conversation. But you make a good point. We are not saved by any political party. So it's important to understand the next president, whoever he or she may be, is not going to save you. Not only are they not going to save you, they may not even help you, even if it's the person you wanted, if you're not willing to push them. And something that I, I really want to impress upon Christians we have a tendency to get who we want in office and then say, I'm just so happy we got them in office. We won, I'm gonna let them do what they wanna do. And especially from a Christian perspective, you gotta understand how politics work. Politics work through pressure. 
And so if you put somebody in office and you're not pushing them, you just leave them to their own devices. Someone else someone will. Someone else is pushing them. <laughs> someone else is pushing them. So even with President Obama or things that we may say, you know, I didn't agree with what he did there. I thought that was hurtful to Christians or just people of any religious belief. Were you pushing him? Or were you saying, I just need to defend him. I'm just happy he's there. Same thing happens on the Republican side. You cannot put somebody in office and not push them. And that's something that we have to understand. This isn't about you being my savior and I'm saying I'm just so happy you're there. No, it's about I put you in here, do your job. Yeah. And if you don't do your job, I'm going to tell you clearly what your job is yeah. through my platform. And, and, and if yeah. you don't do your job, I'm going to hold you accountable. Yeah, and, and I'll just, you know, I was, I was there, you know, it would be funny. There would be a lot of people complaining from the outside about what was happening and it was like the other people are, are, are here. A lot of my job was just trying to motivate, me being in the White House, a lot of my job was trying to motivate people to actually spend some of their, some of their relational and social capital to actually uh, uh, be present in the conversation. Uh, what happens oftentimes is Christians take a posture of uh, uh, sort of uh, moral purity when we know what's right, but we're, we're af- afraid to get involved in the conversation and actually butt our ideas up against uh, others, but we live in a representative democracy. If you're not, if you're not in the conversation, you can't can't be complaining that you're not being heard. If you're not using your, if you're not even trying to use your voice, you can't be complaining that other people are being heard. Well, they're talking. Got to have those conversations. So that's something. If you leave with something, you have to push. Uh, it doesn't come to you. It's something you have to push. And now we're going to go into this conversation, which isn't going to be pretty, about immigration because we've had a lot going on. We're going to bring some uh, people up here after after this conversation. But we're going to talk about immigration. As many of you know, uh, President Trump had some very negative and degrading and ignorant things to say about Haitian and African immigrants this week or last week. Um, And it was really disheartening. I don't know that at this point a whole lot of people were surprised. uh, But it's hard to get used to that. And I think it's a good thing that we don't get used to that that happening. I had the honor uh, of writing my church's response uh, from Greater Piney Grove Baptist Church to what happened, or to what to the statement that the president made, and our response was simply this: uh, We denounce those statements. Uh, that we celebrate what Haitian and African immigrants have brought to this country, have brought to the kingdom. Let's give them a round, round of applause. Really, what they have brought to the kingdom and the world in general—huge contributions, uh, huge contributions—that we have to recognize. And in as far as they're in a position where they're in a state of poverty or desperation, let's realize that imperialism and colonialism had a good part in putting them where they are today. This didn't just happen out of nowhere. And so for us not to look at the history of what's going on and just to jump to that is unfair. So I think unequivocally, we should denounce what the president had to say. No one should talk about anybody from anywhere in the way that he talked about those people. But once again, and words matter. I'm not going to say that words don't matter. But let's also focus on the policies right. and the deeds that have been saying the same thing for centuries about these people. It's not just Donald Trump. So there's been a lot of people in power that haven't made that statement. But their policies have basically said the same thing. That's right. So we tend to get very up in arms about the statement, and we should. Let's start getting up in arms about the policy that is saying exactly that. Um, what are we going to do about those policies? How do we ensure that that does not happen again? And we do need a policy for immigration, but that that policy is fair 
um, and, 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 and judicious in how we, uh, you know, put it out there. Yeah. Well, you know, so, uh, so the, the deferred action uh, program, I think there's room for healthy debate about whether that should have been done the way it was done. I, uh, I think the previous administration was clear that changes like this are best done through legislation. The problem is we, we didn't have legislators who <laughs> were willing to, to act. And so now we're basically at square one where, uh, you know, these kinds of deadlines can always change, but really we're looking at the end of this week uh, when government spending will run out, which is the main leverage, leverage that uh, folks who want to see something happen have. Now, it's important to remember, in the same 72-hour window that, uh, that the President Trump's comments were, were aired and made, uh, Democrats and Republicans in, in the Senate came up with a bipartisan deal to address the problem that seemed to meet uh, President Trump's criteria for what he wanted to see. And, uh, sort of the animosity that was fueled up over uh, the president's uh, remarks and the response to them. Uh, now over the weekend, we saw President Trump saying that uh, the, the deal was a bad deal and uh, uh, nothing was going to happen. And, and w w the, the problem with, <laughs> with this president is uh, the goalposts move every time he talks. And there's not really a firm sense that he even knows where he's placing the goalposts. Uh, and so we need to not lose uh, 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 persistence and not lose sort of uh, our mentality about this, but, but hold him to his word and hold, hold Congress to their word. Congress has said, all the leadership in Congress say they want to address this problem. They're the ones with the votes. Uh, by Friday, they need to get a deal done. And thankfully, we have Senators Lindsey Graham and Senator Dick Durbin, a, a Republican and Democrat in the Senate, that, that came up with a package. Uh, this is a package that should be moved forward. Uh, counts say and reports say that they have the votes to pass it. It's just up to them to bring it up for a vote and have some, have some courage. Yeah, you got to have courage because honestly, we've seen this happen before, especially on the Republican side, when you talk about a candidate like Marco Rubio. One of the biggest knocks on Marco Rubio was that he actually tried to get an immigration, <laughs> an immigration done. Whereas someone like Ted Cruz didn't try and actually benefited from the fact that he didn't even try to work across, uh, across the aisle on something like that. So we have to look at it. And just to give you a little background, the Obama administration, what they wanted to do with immigration was the DREAM Act. And so they had the DREAM Act, which offered a path to citizenship to undocumented uh, um, immigrants. Um, that met certain qualifications. And so they tried to push this through in 2007. They tried to push this through in 2011. They just couldn't get it past the Senate, I believe it was. And so Obama administration said, we're going to take it in our own hands. We have to do something um, because we don't know who's coming in after us. And so that's when DACA, which is the uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, and that's really something that was issued by the Obama administration to protect uh, folks who were brought into this country by their parents uh, through no, you know, no initiative of their own. And there's probably 800,000 people in the country right now that are covered under this. Now, the Trump administration, who we should not be surprised by the immigration policy because he ran on this policy, um, basically said by March 5th, if we don't have something in place, this is over with. Uh, so there's been negotiation all this week. He was inviting people, a bipartisan group, to his office. They were having these conversations. The conversations were actually filmed, so you know that people aren't always as honest they, as they would want to be when they're when they're filmed. But um, so they were trying to get this done. At least it looked like that. And 
So uh, what was it? The the Gang of Six, I think it was the Gang of Six. It's or always eight. a Gang of gang something. Of somebody, yeah, of bipartisan <laughs> folks. They came up. Flaker, I believe, was part of that group. Flake, yeah. Yeah, Flake, mm-hmm. and and they came up with uh, they came up with uh, an agreement. And when they come up with this agreement, really matching what the president said, he comes back, and I think it was yesterday or the day before, and says DACA's dead. <laughs> now. This could just be posturing, right? He could want more. He could, but the, the really the tension here, just so you understand what the battle is, is on. Uh, you know, people want. I think generally, people want these folks to be protected. The issue, I think, from the Republican side is saying that we do need some level of security. Uh, we do need to have a compre- more comprehensive plan, and then just saying, yeah, whoever's here just comes in. And I do think, from a from a position, there needs to be it needs to be more fleshed out because the people who come here that are undocumented. If you have floods, they actually get mistreated, right? You can, it's hard to protect them because they're always scared, and so employers and everyone else actually take advantage of that. So I think the Democrats also could have been a little more responsible. You know, I was a delegate at the Democratic National Convention. You were at the National Convention 2016. There was no policy presented on immigration. It was like, we love you, all come, all come in. Great, we want as many people here as we can get. I think that's a good thing, but they also know you need a policy. And so I thought it was irresponsible not to have a policy that they were presenting within the uh, the Democratic agenda. Yeah, and and, and it just it's it, you know not to belabor the point, but but it's the way that polarization has affected the issue of immigration in particular on both sides of the aisle. You have Democrats. I mean, Dick Durbin's a great example of someone who was talking about immigration much differently with much more. Uh, respect for some of the concerns Republicans are raising now just five, six years ago as compared to now when he's on the Senate floor uh, uh, using epithets to describe anyone who who disagrees with uh, where the party is now. On the Republican side, Justin, you mentioned 2007 there was a DREAM Act vote. I believe in that 2007 vote when George W. Bush was supporting it, and thank God for his leadership uh, and his attempt as president to get comprehensive immigration reform done. In 2007, over a dozen Republicans voted for the DREAM Act when Barack Obama came into office pushing the same legislation. Even some of those same Republicans who voted for it in 2007 all of a sudden were against it. How does that happen? Well, it happens because... Uh, party identity is driving our view of politics more than our view of of people and human flourishing and what's good for the country. And as Christians, this is important. As Christians, we have resources. We're not just out here on our own. We have resources of the gospel on which we can draw on to combat some of that animosity that dehumanizes people and leads us by party identity, which changes all the time instead of what what's for the good and flourishing of our country. No, I think I think that's absolutely right. There's uh, politicians is, have just been disingenuous when it comes to this. The base has shifted, and so the politicians shift and act like they've always stood where they stand. Most Democrats stand where uh, most Democrats stand stood where a lot of uh, middle of the road Republicans are today on this issue. There was nobody in you know in 2002 on the Democratic side that was well. I won't say nobody, but none of the main players was saying open borders, that's all we're going to say, just open the borders, which is not a policy. Um, And so I think we, as Christians, we have to understand we have to be compassionate towards immigrants. We have to have fair and judicious policies. and, 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 And once people are here, treat them humanely, right, and have these conversations. We, DACA needs to be passed. There are too many. I think we have some 
folks who, who, who are protected by DACA who are here today. We need to have this conversation, but we also, for those who are Democrats, need to tell our party there does have to be a policy because you lose credibility when you don't have any policy there at all. So we have to have those, those sort of conversations. So what I would say to watch when it comes to immigration as we move on probably to the next conversation is let's see what's ha what happens with DACA. Was the president, when he said that DACA was dead, was he just posturing? I mean, that happens all the time in negotiations. You say, you know what, the deal is done, walk away, it gives you leverage when the other party thinks you're gonna walk away. Maybe that's what he was doing, just to get a little more security, uh, get a little more on the security side. How will they balance this and will they go with uh, the gang of eight or six or wh whatever it was? But I wanna pull somebody up here. We're, the next thing we're gonna go to is just kind of uh, 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 some religious, a conversation to kind of about uh, religious issues. And I wanna pull somebody that's been very helpful to the AND campaign, has really been a blessing to us, uh, who actually recently uh, ran for mayor of Roswell, Georgia. Uh, did an excellent job running for mayor of Roswell, Georgia. Uh, got into the runoff and very nearly uh, won in that runoff, which is huge because I don't think Roswell, Georgia has ever had an African-American mayor. Uh, so this is someone who I believe that you'll be seeing in this area. Let's welcome up uh, Lee Jenkins to talk, talk with us real quick. Lee, Lee, thank you for joining us, brother. I know you are a very busy brother, man, but I, I just want the folks out here to kind of get an understanding of who, who you are, what are some of the things you've done in the community, uh, and then we can kind of get into the campaign and what happened there. Well, thank you for inviting me here. It's a pleasure to be here with you all to celebrate this incredible holiday, the MLK holiday. So uh, I'm Lee Jenkins, born and raised here in Atlanta, um, ran for mayor of Roswell, and, but, I, but I want to tell you a little bit about my background and then kind of why I decided to run and then what that experience was all about because it was very enlightening to me and I believe it is very relevant to some of the things we're talking about. I grew up here in Atlanta, Atlanta native, um, of course was entrenched in uh, the political world. Uh, Maynard Jackson, uh, the former mayor of Atlanta, lived a couple of blocks from me. Andy Young lived a couple of blocks from me on the other side. Uh, John Lewis lived right down the street from me. And so I've known uh, them since literally since I was a teenager. And so um, then I go to the University of Tennessee on a football scholarship and was entrenched in uh, Republican politics. Uh, this was 1980 when Ronald Reagan had just taken office and I was in the middle of the Bible Belt, a football player, had committed my life to the Lord. And so uh, I got really the best of both worlds, the best of the, the Democratic Party and then the best in college of the Republican Party. So uh, when I came out of college and, and got into the working world, I spent uh, 25 years in the investment business. I was uh, really kind of confused politically because I didn't feel like I fit in either party. Uh, there were things that I loved about both parties and there were things that I despised about both parties. So I had people trying to get me to run for office for many, many years and I always declined because I said I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican. And so people said, well, you can't run as an independent unless you're a billionaire, you know, because you know, you'd have to fund your own campaign. So I said, I guess I'll just never run. Well, um, last year I was so bothered in 2016, really during the national election, uh, that I was brought to tears about our, our political discourse in this country. And I just began to ask the Lord, Lord, what can I do? 
And so the, the best way to make a change is to get involved. And the best place to get involved is on the local level. Sometimes we're so worried about national issues that we literally uh, ignore or, or, or just forget about the, the change that we can have that's right across the street from us. So I began to pray about it and um, some people came to me, some very affluent, some very prominent people in Roswell and they asked me to run for mayor of Roswell. Asked me would I be open to it. My initial reaction was uh, like um, Arnold on different strokes. You know, what you talking about Willis? <laughs> I mean, Roswell, let me tell you about this city, is 75% white. It is about 90-something percent conservative Republican. It is affluent, and it is a little bit older than most Atlanta suburbs. And there has never been a black political uh, leader or politician, not only in Roswell, but in North Fulton. So the fact that this group of people who were white were asking me to run for mayor and saying that we have watched your leadership. By the way, I'm a pastor. I got out of the investment business after 25 years, launched a church called Eagle's Nest Church in Roswell, Georgia in 2012. And so we grew, we've grown from 15 people to over 1,000 people in five years. And so God has really been blessing us. And I've been very, very vocal and very active as it relates to racial unity. And so some of these people saw how I have been leading and bringing people together, and they thought that I could, could do that with our city. So let me tell you about my experience. I decided to say yes. Uh, I decided to say yes for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, if we want to see change, we have to get involved. We can't just sit around and criticize and not get involved. And that's what a lot of Christians do, but we're supposed to be salt and light to the earth. Salt has to get on the meat to make a difference. But we've been in the salt shakers complaining. That's what we've been doing. So we're not supposed to just be on the soft salt shaker on the table for decoration. Salt makes a difference when salt gets on the meat. And so Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about when he made that metaphor. So I decided to run. And the first question I asked myself is, will white people who are conservative follow a black leader who is fairly moderate? Now, conservative, very conservative politically on some views, but then if you looked at me uh, on some other issues, you might say I was a liberal. Um, but overarching all of that is I'm a, I'm a biblical Christian. Amen. I amen. believe in the Bible. So anyway, it was a great experience. Um, I ran, uh, it was five people in the uh, race. Uh, political experts from Washington, D.C., some consultants said that I would not even get over, I would not even get into the double digits in the general election. And they mainly said it because I was black. And, they, and so in the general election, I got 30-something percent of the votes. Nobody got um, 50% or more, so they took the top two, and it was me against a 15-year political veteran. 
And, um, and so at the, in the runoff election, I got 45% uh, of the votes. And, uh, and most of those votes uh, were, were many whites. And because Roswell is only 10% black, 15% Hispanics, and many of them aren't even registered to vote. And so most of the, the political power in Roswell are conservative white Republicans. And I was able to garner that vote. So, uh, so I'll tell you about some of my experiences. Questions? Yeah, no, I was saying that's commendable. That's commendable. I mean, you, I know how hard you worked, and it's not yeah. easy. People have to realize, and be slow. The closer you are to politics, the slower you are to be harsh in your criticism. You, we can say anything when we're anonymous or when somebody can't see us or touch us, but you have to remember these people have families. These people have to go home, and their wife sees the comments that someone might have made on their page. Uh, so think twice before you really criticize too harshly. But I kind of want to talk about that. Uh, that side of politics and some of the things that you endure that you might not necessarily expect. From my understanding, you kind of got it from, from both sides and kind of explain some of the things you endured during the campaign. Yeah, it was one of the most enlightening, exhilarating experiences I've ever had in my life, but it was also one of the most degrading, most disappointing experiences I've ever had in my life. I saw the best in human beings. I really did. I, I saw people... Uh, follow me that I never thought would follow me and become a fan and become a friend. But it was also the worst that I've ever seen in human beings. The depravity of, of human beings, I saw that. And it was, it, was, it was very depressing at times. So here's what I went through. Um, bringing my values into this space, politics, was very, very difficult. Because there usually were three kinds of people. Uh, let's just say a third of the people were pretty happy for me. They were like, wow, finally a man or woman of faith getting into the public square and, and, and using their influence to, uh, to try to change things for the sake of, of righteousness and justice. Finally, we have a candidate that we could get behind. I mean, that was about a third of the people who were very excited. Then there was a third, another third, and this third were Christian people who felt like Christian folks had no business, especially a Christian leader, being involved in politics. But yet they were complaining about how bad things are, but then they don't want anybody to get involved. They just want to sit around and complain. Now, I wonder what kind of Bible were these people reading? Because all throughout the Bible, the, 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 the power, political power was challenged. And if we don't get involved, then we won't ever see change. But a third, the other third of the people really shocked me. And these were people who really attacked me for my Christian faith. And I mean, they attacked me viciously. Um, they uh, came at me, and I guess you could say many of these people uh, would probably be categorized as being on the left. And I was shocked because I know uh, particularly uh, my heart toward the poor, my heart toward the disenfranchised. And so I thought that out of all the groups, that this group would be a group that would embrace me. And it was the opposite. They told me that uh, because I believed in the Bible, that they wanted nothing to do with me. 
because all I would do is is come against some of their uh, some of their values. Uh, for instance, the uh, LGBTQ community. Uh, uh, all all kind of things. I mean, they they wanted me to renounce. Uh, my association, I was on the 700 Club nine years ago. Pat Robinson uh, interviewed me. I was talking about economics. They wanted me to go public and say that that, that was a mistake for me being on the 700 Club. Um, they, they, it was just all kind of things. Pretty much what they were saying is that you need to renounce your faith. You can't be a Bible believer and have us to support you. You either you either come all the way over here with us or we don't want anything to do with you. So they basically gave me an ultimatum that we'll get behind you. But here are the things that you have to uh, you have to believe. And there's no in between. And that was very disappointing. And the crazy part of it, you weren't alone. Um, There was a brother here uh, named Dr. Howard, who's a dentist. Very well known in the community, been working on education issues for a long time. He ran as a Democrat uh, for the Georgia Senate. And uh, Dr. Howard was completely blown away by how he was treated. Um, He had people that had endorsed him the last time basically tell him because he was a biblical Christian and because of things he had said on his Facebook, which were very well thought out, that he was not fit to run for office. And so... The sad part about it was I heard about it from my friend who's in Harvard Divinity School. He said, Justin, do you see what's going on down here? And I said, whoa, let me reach out to this guy. Because literally he had to take down his social media, some of his social media pages because of these attacks. He had someone tell him, and I sent it to Leon and other pastors, and I thank you all for contacting him. Dr. Jaha Howard had people tell him that they wished he was in that Texas church that got shot up because of his beliefs. He was in an organization called the Red Clay Democrats who he was on the board of governors and they knew where he stood. But when the campaign came, you know what they did? They asked him to resign. Not only did they ask him to resign, but when he didn't resign, they endorsed the other candidate. Very serious stuff. And this was a thoughtful guy. This was someone who was fighting for those with less education. This is someone who had policies that was that were going to speak to uh, the, the least of these. And they were just saying, because of your beliefs, you are not qualified. And so what we're describing here uh, is one of a rising number of examples of what is called, and I want y'all to write this down, religious exclusions. This is called religious exclusion. Now listen closely, because this that I'm talking about right now might be one of the most important things that you hear today. Because a lot of urban Christians especially do not have this religious exclusion on their radar. Now, when the political left was rightfully indignant, when the Republican senator, Senate candidate from Alabama, Roy Moore, asserted that Muslims shouldn't be able to hold elected office. Everyone was up in arms, and we should have been, because that statement was repugnant, it was undemocratic, and it's not something that we should ever stand for. But the ironic thing about that is that the far left is doing is taking a very similar stance in relation to urban Christians who have a centered or traditional point of view on social issues. Now, I'm going to give you a definition for this religious exclusion, and I want you to spread this. I want you to have these conversations because it needs to be addressed. Religious exclusion basically involves the intimidation of people with certain religious beliefs 
to coerce them into self-censoring or denying those beliefs. So the first thing they'll do is they'll call you and say, we're going to, they may call you first or not, and say, we're going to attack you. I need you to disavow this, this, and this that you said. So in order to run, you have to become someone different than who you are. So that's one way to do it. Uh, or it can involve the use of other tactics to limit our political participation. The focus here is not on policy. It's on creed. And what you have to understand is someone's creed, you don't know how that's going to be applied to when they're in office. You, it, you don't necessarily have to worry about who's a sinner. And I, I got this from my brother, Chris Butler. You said you don't have to worry about who I think is a sinner. You need to worry about what I was taught or how to treat sinners. You don't know how I'm going to apply what I'm doing. So it's really not political. It's not fair at all. Right. Um, and the overall goal here is really to silence these people and exclude them. Jaha, I see he just walked in. Come on up here, brother, if you would. It's really to exclude these people from office solely on the basis of their religious beliefs. This is religious exclusion. It is going on in the urban space in a very serious way. I want you to answer one question, and nobody really has been able to answer this question for me. Can you think of a prominent urban black or brown politician that will come out and even question the left's stance on abortion or question the left's stance on uh, other uh, gender issues. Just question it. Can you think of one that is nationally known that would do that? So you can shout it out. Not one. We have all these people in this city who believe, who have a more centered or traditional view of social issues. And you don't have one representative who would even say anything about those things. If you think that happens by coincidence, then you're wrong. But you, we better be serious about this conversation. We better address this conversation because if we allow it to go in the same direction that it's going now, your children, your next door neighbor, the person that's next to you in the pew will not be able to run for office because they're automatically unfit because of the religious beliefs. So there will be people that will say, I'm thinking about myself, my career, my profession. I want to run, and I'll do it without upholding those. Then be who you are. But then if that's the case, we're going to get what we deserve. So the question that I'm asking you today and challenging you with today, are you willing to stand up and talk about this issue? I want to hand the mic over to uh, Dr. Howard to quickly kind of tell us about his experience. I talked about it in summary a little bit, but we're glad you're here. Talk to us, man. All right. So... I see I walked into a great conversation, all right? So uh, about 15 minutes ago, I was uh, just checking the teeth of, of like a five-year-old, you know, who made sure that they don't bite me, you know, that they're doing well. But in dental school, you learn how to do the matrix. You can avoid all the, all the bites from the little folks. So for those who don't know me, I'm a Dr. Jaha Howard. I'm a pediatric dentist in Bindings. I grew up in Atlanta, went to Mays High School, uh, Howard University, a couple of times. I spent a couple of years in Chicago at University of Illinois Chicago doing a master's in residency and came on back. So my wife and I have been married 10 years, three kids, seven, five, and three. Amen. <laughs> and uh, yesterday, let's see, uh, my wife went on a girl's trip two days ago. I said, yeah, go ahead. You know, you got it. You know, for those that saw the movie, you don't say, go, go ahead. Oh, that's right. Religious people don't see movies like Girls Trip. <laughs> ah, okay, so um, just really, really quickly, um, I'm, I'm, I was a candidate for state senate. Uh, the the area is District 6. And uh, the area is Smyrna, Vinings, uh, most of Buckhead. 
And it's an area that's probably unique because it's the only district that's almost 50-50 Republican and Democrat. It's really, really exciting. So I ran as a first-time candidate last year against a pretty conservative Republican trying to flip the seat uh, to Democrat. And uh, it was interesting because last year um, I was, they said they should, I should consider you know, not letting people know what my first name is because my first name is Jaha, like Aha. They're like, oh, he sounds too Muslim. So I was like, so I was like really? You want me to drop my first name? That's kind of crazy. Um, so that was interesting. And then this year, um, you know, I guess we ran a really strong campaign, almost uh, beat a heavily favored uh, incumbent, so we came up a little short. And then this year, uh, I, I got it from the, from the left. And now I was too religious. Now, now I'm too Christian. It's like, wow, 12 months ago I was, I was Muslim, and now I'm, <laughs> now I'm too Christian. And, uh, and that sounds familiar. <laughs> I was like, that's amazing. I was like, and, and, and check this, the, the most damaging thing, I mean, they really dug and dug and dug, and I, my opponent was very well-funded, has a lot of uh, connections, uh, you know, a lot of deep connections. And they dug and dug, and, and the big political attack that they used was my Facebook conversations about biblical interpretation of various issues from years ago. That was the attack. And the fact that that was the attack is already saying so much. Like, are you mean to tell me that me, as someone who's a deacon at my church, I teach Bible study, uh, I still to this day, Sundays and Wednesdays, teach Bible study at West End Church of Christ, uh, talk about apologetics and biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, and really challenging the faith of the students. I work with young adults. And you mean to tell me that this conversa these conversations that we have and that I had years ago is damaging now? Now, that disqualifies me from being considered a Democrat. And that's kind of what was happening. It wasn't said overtly by the party leadership, but it was said from, uh, from most of the ultra-left. And it was interesting. So just really quickly, uh, the mail house that I was working with sent me a nice email that said, I no longer can work with you. I was like, oh, so there's my mail house. Okay, we, we had a mail that was supposed to drop like in two days. Wow, okay, so that's interesting. And uh, all of my top staff, because this year, I was like, this year I'm going to work with a lot of more party folks. Last year I did it with a lot of my friends. We just got together and said, we're going to do this. And this year I was like, I'm going to get some folks who are really uh, more connected to the party. And so pretty much all of my top staff, campaign manager, a lot of the directors, left. They were intimidated. They said, I, I won't be able to get another job working for a candidate in the Democratic Party because I'm with someone who mentioned anything about homosexuality and dare publicly wrestle with the idea of how my personal biblical beliefs and how that, how, what would I do as a legislator when I represent lots of, type, like, lots of people from different backgrounds. Amazing. Um, so that's a little snapshot. I'll just stop there, yeah, and, and that's just a little sprinkle. I'm, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Brother Weir um, talk about this, but I believe me, I wouldn't have these two brothers up here if they weren't thoughtful and compassionate, because the the Ann campaign is a biblical Christian uh, organization, an Orthodox organization, but we are compassionate. So when he says he spoke on these issues, he's not saying he didn't speak with compassion. He didn't see that say that he would speak to any of those people or treat them differently than he would treat anybody else. And that's when we're talking about creed versus policy. How was it applied? 
Um, so we just need to have these conversations, but understand within this, these were two thoughtful brothers. And honestly, when I look at their resumes, I told them as somebody who's run several campaigns, this is the 99 percentile of, of candidate. The fact that any party or any group would want to exclude them from, from being in the game is just ridiculous to me, but that's exactly what happened. And thank you for sharing your stories. Oh, first, I'm thankful for both of y'all. Um, we need more people like y'all in politics, not, not less. Uh, I think we all feel a little politically homeless in this time. And, and what I want to communicate is that the crisis is not the Christians are politically homeless. The crisis is that we ever thought we could make our home in politics at all. We're always, as Brother said, we're always going to be salt in the political parties we're in. And we still, need to, we still need to participate. Now, one thing that needs to happen to address this problem is that those of, listen, Republicans telling Democrats this is, this is wrong isn't going to have an effect. Republicans are telling Democrats they're wrong on everything. Uh, uh, for those who are Democrats, for those who the party's going to be, you know, it's so funny, these, uh, the party's dismissing all these candidates that attend or even lead churches that they'll be coming to the Sunday before Election Day to try and get out the vote. So isn't that interesting? They'll come around the Sunday before Election Day, uh, but they, they don't want any of the people in the church actually running for office. Uh, so so we, need, we need to be communicating to elected officials uh, that, that you're not going to be bullied, that you're not going to swallow this stuff just so you could have someone who uh, thinks that you have the right to vote, <laughs> someone that thinks that the social safety net shouldn't be cut. Uh, you know, just as, as a member of the Democratic Party, I'll say, you know, if the Democratic Party is going to uh, uh, position itself and if, if we're going to... And, you know, you see all the Twitter conversation about uh, got to listen to black and brown folks, which we do. You got to listen to them even when you don't want to hear them or when you don't like what they're saying. And if, if you're discounting uh, 50% of, for instance, his, uh, Hispanic population, 48% pro-life, uh, wh who is the Democratic uh, Hispanic elected official who's pro-life? There, there's not one. And then we talk about representation in politics. Well, if, if your party is saying uh, half of y'all are off the table, that, that's, a, that's, a pro that's a representation vote, problem, too. Yeah, we'll take, we'll your, take vote. your vote. We just don't want you to run we, You just can't represent us. That, that's right. Now, now, the way that changes is the reason why that Democratic, uh, the, the direct mail house was able to uh, drop you is because they, they knew that they would pay more uh, if they kept you than to drop you. We need to change the power and economics equation on that. Um, and, and, and those of you who are invested, it has to be communicated. Look, we, we love so much of what you're doing. Uh, you need to represent your whole district on these issues too. And you, you can disagree with the policy position, but don't follow the, the rhetoric that tries to uh, demonize folks. Don't try and say that we're uh, un, unfit for public office. We voted you in. If we're unfit, you're unfit. That's a very good point that you made. Nobody's saying that these people had to agree with these guys up here, right? But this is a matter of political participation. They shouldn't be able to use uncivil tactics to preclude them from getting in office. And so what I think is the answer is that we should have a zero tolerance policy. Number one, for candidates who are engaged in any of this stuff. 
uh, for politicians who endorse candidates who do this or for any group that allows their infrastructure to be used for something like this. And so when you engage a politician or somebody who's running for office, one of your first questions should be, how do you feel about religious exclusion? They'll say, what is that? You can explain to them what religious exclusion is. There shouldn't be a person that can walk into a church within this city around the nation without answering where they stand on religious exclusion. And even if this group, the people in here today, made this a serious issue where we were tweeting it out, we were putting it on Facebook, everything we could do, it becomes an issue. It becomes a thing. I can't say today that tomorrow the Democratic Party is going to say, hey, we agree with you guys on everything that you say. No. But when you make it a thing, it's now an issue that they have to address. And so that's why we put language behind it. That's why we gave you a concept that had been thought through. Now it's our time to make it a thing. The one last thing I'll address, and, and then I'll kind of dismiss these guys, we'll have one more quick conversation, is that we have to make sure, one of the bad things that happens with everything being activism being social media based, is we go from one issue to another. Today I'm talking about Libya, this day I'm talking about that, but we don't really do anything about it but argue and talk about it. For 2018, let's make sure that we pick some issues like religious exclusion and we stick to them. That we prioritize. That's, that's why people have platforms. So that's why the Democratic Party has a convention every four years. They pick the issues that are priority and that they're going to stick to. The only reason, and we, every person in here should take responsibility for what happened to these two. Because when it happened, none of us were there. None of us were standing up for them when this was happening to them. So we all, we all should feel some kind of way because their, their families lost sleep and had to see people saying they wish they got shot. Uh, folks were pulling up his, his sermons and saying, you said this, and he'd be, at a, he'd be at a forum, and they're shouting him down to where he can't even speak. We weren't there. So I think all of us should take the time and resolve to say next time, we're going to do everything we can to be there for our candidates because we don't take care of them, who will? So let's make sure that we're having those conversations. I want to thank these two for coming up and speaking with Church Politics. Please give them a round of applause. Thanks so much, buddy. All right, show. Run up here real quick, show. We got show Barack in the house. Can we give him a round of applause as well? We're about to get out there and start marching. Like we said, we're going to give you some substance, then we're going to have some solidarity. But before we do that, we've been talking a lot about politics. I also want to make sure, you good? I also want to make sure that we have a conversation about culture. And so I've asked Show Baraka, many of you know uh, about this brother. I asked Show Baraka, who's a co founder of the Ann Campaign, who's a Christian artist. Can I call you a Christian artist or no? I don't know if that's in or out sometimes. Sometimes y'all like it, sometimes you don't. But. He's here. I want to, oh, there, as long as you're a Christian politician, I'll be a Christian artist. If I was ever a politician, I'll take that, I'll take that label. <laughs> Christian lawyer, whatever you want to call it, Justin. That's cool, I'm with that. Semantics with going that. on. Right, a lot of semantics. <laughs> but yeah, we want to talk to you about social issues. One of the things that you and I have conversations about all the time is the present state of the fight for social justice mm -hmm. and kind of who's been leading that, where Christians can fit in, things that we should, people we should partner with because I think partnerships are good and things that we should shy away from or correct. And I just want to have that conversation with you, brother. What, what are your thoughts on the current state of the social justice conversation uh, in America? Uh, you know, oftentimes, like, so the more that I read, I think oftentimes we romanticize like the, the, the periods in which we live in. 
if you're a student of history and you just read, you realize that there have always been voices that spoke up for the marginalized. And um, I don't think it's any different than, um, than today. I, I will say that I think Christians, um, I, I find this great insecurity in Christians that because we, we're, we're so busy with trying to appease the world and to be liked sometimes that we allow the margins, or not the margins, but we allow the think tanks to determine where we should ebb and flow. It's amazing. We live in such a time where people actually worship kind of like identity idolatry. It's like, I want to be individuals. I want to be ident- I want to be separated from the group. But at the same time, the moment someone does that, you're ostracized, right? The moment I, I begin to think uh, and speak differently about, God forbid that I ever say anything bad about Obama around black people because all my blackness is going to be taken away from me. And that should be, I should have that liberty and that freedom because we're not a monolithic people, right? And we're, there's diversity amongst us. And we think differently, but I think in our, especially in our social media bullying, where all activism is done pretty much today, if you stray away from the, prop, the popular thought of what social media is saying, then you're already, you're going to be labeled a Tom, you're going to be labeled this, a coon, um, a snowflake, whatever, right? And so... I think this is nothing any different from uh, MLK, and it's, 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 it's appropriate because I think the more that I'm reading about the movement and the projects that I'm doing surrounding his life and the life of others, there, there's four significant oppositions that he faced. We all know like the extreme racial vitriolic responses that he got from people who just were, who were prejudiced and racist, right? But then you also had people who Maybe another extreme were the black conscious movements who felt like he was a he was a he was a Tom, that he didn't really perpetuate the real uh, uh, posture that we need. Like you're talking about this nonviolence that only assuages the white folks, right? We need to bring this we need to bring this heat, right? And uh, so you had a lot of people will say, well, I'm not down with them. Okay, I want my I'm bringing Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then I think the most of us. We can fall in these last two categories, uh, and this is the, the, the white kind of individual who has compassion, and this is where he wrote his letters to a Birmingham jail, but you're very complacent and apathetic at times. And in the same sense, the more I read, I find out that there was a large African-American contingency that felt the same way, because they're starting to get some upward mobility, and they're starting to get complacent within society, and MLK coming in, shaking things up, talking about poor people's campaigns, Vietnam wars, and racial unity messes their situation up. And so if you're too busy trying to obtain power, right, if you're too busy trying to put, like Brother Reggie Williams talks about, if your Jesus isn't crucified, then you have a problem. If your Jesus looks more like a lobbyist than Lord, then I think we're worshiping two different Jesus, right? Right. And at the end of the day, my my tension is, yes, let's advocate for policies. Let's advocate for things that we think can bring flourishing to a community. But the the problem that evangelicals have is the problem that I don't want to reciprocate is that I don't want to put policies in solely for the purposes to to leverage power for my own benefit and flourishing. Am I considering the margins? And so I'll just say that roughly. I, I can go on. Go on, bro. I can go on saying amazing things because we all know I'm show Baraka. But 
What I would love to do, and I know this is a <laughs> hiccup, I honestly want to hear questions from, like, if there's questions, because I know we don't have that much time, and you guys have been giving some great information. I don't want to assume that people are just, like, don't have any questions regarding Absolutely. to. Absolutely. So we're going to do that. We got Angel Maldonado. Raise your hand. Angel will bring you the mic if you have a question for a show or the uh, church politics crew. Oh, so y'all were going to do that already. I didn't know. My bad. See, that's why the Lord didn't have your mic on, because sometimes, even in your own church, you got to be humbled. Come on, Jesus. Still can't hear you. Look at it. See, the Lord knows. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, it's, it's, pastors are asking these questions around the country, especially in these times when, uh, you know, depending on what the latest, you know, news headline is, uh, pastors are meeting with congregants or prospective congregants, and they aren't asking, you know, what's this church's view of salvation? What's this church's view of, uh, uh, of uh, various theological principles? It's, uh, you know, what, what kind of approach would your church take to Trump's last comment? Or what, what kind of a... I want to... Um, as politically interested people, those of us in the room, we have to make sure that we're not shifting the, polit- the burden of political advocacy solely to our pastors. So I tell pastors... Look, uh, your primary role is to shepherd your people. Uh, It's not to advance a political agenda. Uh, That that may not be a calling. Now, very different pastors may may feel uh, called in the the makeup of their congregation and the way that they're situated in their community may lead them to speak more or less from the pulpit. But I I caution pastors on it it is... uh, Folks will never be satisfied 
by what you say from the pulpit on politics. And oftentimes, when congregants are asking their pastors to speak on a political issue, they aren't looking to be challenged. They're not looking for biblical wisdom. What they're looking is for the pastor to use the authority of the pulpit to give them something to hit their fellow congregant over the head with. Oh, well, pastor said that you're wrong, so you're wrong. <laughs> you know. Um, and so we need to be wary of that. At the same time, look, the the reason why the evangelical, the white evangelical political project failed uh, is not because they didn't muster up enough power. It's because uh, there was a, a discipleship vacuum. They actually weren't formed in the likeness of Christ. And so they tried to enter into politics with, with Christian language and with Christian relationships and sort of leveraging that language when they actually were, were playing by... Uh, by the same rules. And for Christians, the ends can't justify the means. For Christians, the means are the end. Faithfulness is the end. And so the best thing pastors can do is make sure that their people are formed so that when political circumstances happen, they're reacting to those as Christians and not as Democrats or Republicans or people shaped in the ways of this world. Now, sometimes that'll mean, sometimes that'll mean directly, you know, so I think, uh, uh, I know uh, uh, there's this Bishop Orlando Finlater in, uh, in, in New York City. He has a Caribbean church. Uh, you might want to, if, if something happens in the news that specifically affects uh, your congregation uh, and your community, you might want to address it directly. But I also want to warn pastors against the temptation of following the news because then they're never actually going to be doing the spiritual formation uh, so that people are prepared to act when the pastor isn't around to tell them what to do or what to say. But uh, it, it's, it's an important, important mission, and I hope churches will be thinking more proactively about how to prepare their people, not just for pri their private and personal lives, but we increasingly live public and political lives, and we need to be formed, and we need to be able to trust Jesus in that area too. We often think Jesus is daunted by politics, that he doesn't understand what's going on. Jesus, Jesus understands exactly what's going on, and he has the knowledge and the brilliance to equip us to deal with the situations and circumstances that confront us. Question for uh, Michael. Um, under Reagan, obviously, this trickle-down thing didn't work very well. You had the crack, um, crack epidemic, and so many people suffered. My question to you is, what will make that ideology work now? Are you optimistic? Is it anything we can do, common folk, to apply pressure on corporations to make sure that it trickled down, that it worked. How can we get involved in that area? Because I'm seriously concerned. I lived during that Reagan time, and it was horrible. Um, what can we do, and are you optimistic? I'm interested in what Sean just have to say on this. I will say um, Atlanta's, a, Atlanta's a hub, and politicians called on corporations to uh, use their leverage to help them when it came to religious freedom fights in this state. There's absolutely no reason why corporations shouldn't be called to the carpet when it comes to using whatever corporate windfall they get from this tax bill to actually invest in Atlanta. 
uh, I think Coca-Cola does some pretty, uh, and Delta, uh, they, they're, they're, they put out great press releases and they do a lot for the community, but let's make sure that when uh, the time for corporate bonuses comes out, uh, that, that the extent of those bonuses doesn't reflect sort of a, a discrepancy with the investments they're making in their employees, First and first and foremost, I think I think corporations have an obligation first and foremost to their the people who work from them uh, down the chain, but then the communities in which they're benefiting from. Uh, and so, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, the, the, you know, there's. Um, uh, uh, organizing economic power and economic spending power. I, but, but at the end of the day, it, uh, we did try this in the 80s. Kansas is trying it now, and it's tearing their state apart. Um, and so, you know, for I think the case has been made. I think there are great innovative Republican ideas on how uh, conservative economic principles could be used to benefit the family. Unfortunately, that wasn't the side of the conservative of the Republican Party that won the argument on how this tax plan would be put out. So this isn't a Republican Democratic thing. Uh, uh, there are just real concerns. We're going to have to mobilize power the best we can. I think states are showing some leadership um, when it comes to trying to offset some of the inequality that, unfortunately, I think is going to be spurred by this this tax plan. Um, and then you know, churches can be economic engines as well, and making sure that regardless of what the government does, that the church is there and prepared to take care of people who who are on the uh, outside of uh, of political uh, of policies. But I'm I'm eager to hear what Show and Justin have to add on that. Yeah, I would I would just say that keep in mind too that uh, tax and economic policy is hard. Right. There's there's no mad. There's no button you push that says I want to help people. So I'm going to push this button and it helps everybody. There's a lot of things that are trial and error. There are a lot of things that have gone on on, on the left, too. And I don't know that I've seen a lot. I want great policy from the left. I don't know that I've seen something that solves all these problems either. Right. So we want to be fair. It's about stagnant. That. Yeah, yeah, it's very it's stagnant. stagnant. The partially because of us. And we had this conversation earlier. There's not a lot of focus just on the policy. There's a focus on rhetoric. There's focus on what you can do to keep your people over to on your side and get a few extra people just enough to win. But there hasn't been a lot of great policy papers that come out. We had a conversation on the reformicons, right? Uh, when we, we talked about it was a group of, of center-right Republicans who had some great policy that were really breaking with a lot of trends that Republicans had done that was really good. I didn't agree with all of it. I'm a Democrat. Yeah. I didn't agree with all of it, but I said, this is thoughtful. It's a conversation we should be having. Yeah, it's yeah. a conversation we should be having, and what happens is there's not even a lot of focus on policy. So we can say this isn't going to trickle down. I have my suspicions that it won't. We'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll open it up. But is there an answer on the other side? So that's something else to keep in mind when we have this conversation as yeah. well. Yeah, I'd like to comment on that. Uh, Trickle-down economics assumes that a person's heart is right. So if you think a human being, particularly a human being who doesn't have Christ in their heart, will get more money, more profits, and then say, wow, it's time to help the poor people. Wow, it's time to help minorities. It's time to help. It just doesn't happen like that. It didn't happen like that in 1980s. The rich got richer, and companies got bigger. Stock prices went up. That's what drove the stock market higher. Do you think all those companies all of a sudden, now, did they hire more people? Absolutely. But for the most part, 
we are making a huge assumption when we say that uh, when you cut taxes for the rich and when you do things for the rich that it will trickle down to everybody else. It doesn't because of one word, and it is greed. It is greed. I mean, think about it. We have to even ask ourselves this question. If we had an extra $200,000, will we spend it on ourselves? Will we pay off our own debt? Or will we give most of it away to people who need it? And these are the same things that companies have to think about. And for the most part, the disenfranchised, the people who really need the help, get left out. And it's because of the condition of the human heart. So until you change a person's heart, you're not going to see a lot of economic change. Thank you, Pastor Lee. Two, one, two. Can I, I like to, and, and if I can extend that challenge to within the church, right? And Justin mentioned this earlier, that if we have an anemic view of how people are to use their resources in work. Like if we have an improper theology of work within our churches, then that means we're, we're, there's, that's improper spiritual formation. And to Mike's point, like we're not discipling people. If a, if a guy walks into our church and he's been pimping for 15 years and he comes to know the Lord, there's no question that every pastor in this room knows how to drive him towards repentance, right? We'll say, well, you need to stop exploiting these women for the benefit of your own good and do something right with this money. But if another individual who's made his living off of predatory lending for the last 20 years walks into a church, and, and matter of fact, he can be a Christian while predatory lending, we reward him and say that he is using his gifts for the, <laughs> for the benefit of the kingdom. So how do we, amen, how do we begin to promote and challenge these individuals who are using their work for destruction, right, rather than flourishing. And I think oftentimes what happens, and, I, and I'm sure none of these pastors, and I know Leon's is not one of them, but we don't, when we talk about work and we talk about Christian responsibility, we hardly talk about how God has called us to redeem not only our personal relationship with him, our personal relationship with one another, but our relationship to our work as well. How do you create and you cultivate? Because if sin has distorted the image of God, and who we are and our reflection of him, it's, it's ruined not only our reflection in community, but it also has ruined how we create and cultivate. And so Christ is redeeming that. And so as we go and work, think about, like, am I contributing to the, to the, to the destruction of my city, although the world sees it as flourishing, or am I being charitable? So I think there's a personal challenge to even how we see our vocation in the church. And so not... Let's change hearts on a large scale, but individually, as you're discipling people, ask tough questions about why they work in certain industries and what are they doing and how are they contributing to the, the redemption of this system and this institution that can be very um, pimpish. My question's more towards um, social, social justice. How do we, as Christians, follower of Christ, respond to the mass incarceration issue that we have here in the United States? We have um, individuals in church that aren't willing to actually talk um, about it. We have mothers grieving because their sons are incarcerated or um, children whose father, uncle. How are we, as believers, helping 
the people that are struggling with a loved one that is incarcerated, and not just one, several in families. Like, how are we responding? Because we're not having that dialogue, we're not having that conversation, because those individuals have committed a sin or a crime that is unforgivable to others, but they're also, they can be redeemed. Um, so how are we responding to those individuals as a church? Like, what is our responsibility? Because these are people that are also in need of the gospel, um, that families struggle every day to see them. What, how do we respond? It's uh, social injustice. Like, what? Yeah, so first I hope the response is with compassion and not a hardened heart. And a lot of times what we see is when we're not in relationship with people who are going through these things, it doesn't matter as much to us because there's no relationship there. From a, so obviously the compassion, the prayer, and all those things. And then on the practical side, and though these, things, two, these two things need to be coupled, really starting to focus on your state and local government. We, when, we talk about, when we talk a lot about uh, mass incarceration, we talk about it on a federal level and what Trump is doing, but most people are not incarcerated in federal prison. Most people are incarcerated in state prisons. And it's based on, a lot of times, it's based on the discretion, and, and I know prosecutors who will say this, prosecutorial discretion, where these guys are saying, hey, either you go to the jail for 25 years or you have to go to trial. And you have an attorney that's like, uh, you might as well take it, and you're like, I didn't do it, but... If I lose, I'm in there for 25 years, right? And so one of the ways is through guidelines and policy, really looking at how our policy kind of focuses on prosecutors. And there's some wonderful prosecutors. I have a lot of friends who are prosecutors. But they'll tell you sometimes that discretion is a little too broad. And, it's so, and so for them, they, at the end of the day, you know, whoever's running your prosecutor's office, he wants to be able to say, I, I put this many people in jail. I did this, this, and this. And that's what people want to hear. But we really have to look at those guidelines. So I would say focusing on state and local government, and really organizing other believers. Sister, you sound like you're extremely passionate about this. I guarantee if you set your mind to it, came to the end campaign, talked to us, we can lay out a plan to say we're going to organize Christians around this issue. We're actually going to talk about, not talk about today, but we're actually going to have some focus also on criminal justice issues uh, when it comes to civil forfeiture, when it comes to uh, people getting bond and bail and all those conversations. We're going to start having those conversations, but it really starts with you writing down what you feel, getting a focus on it, and having... Uh, the, the determination to organize people. And when, let me tell you, that is not a glamorous task. It's hard. It's ugly. Some people just want to be there when the cameras are there. Some people just want to be there when they can throw up with their fists and be on Instagram, right? So you're going to go through all that, but it really comes down to the organizing and knowing what the issues are. And you can, you can do a lot if that's what you're willing to do. Just two quick things, which uh, the, the first is criminal justice reform is actually one of the rare spots where we're seeing... Uh, Christian-driven, bipartisan work. So uh, during the Obama administration, a commission was set up uh, to address criminal justice reform, bipartisan commission, named after Chuck Colson, the Nixon uh, administration official who became a Christian. Uh, uh, and, and we're seeing people like Rand Paul from Kentucky partnering with uh, uh, Cory Booker on criminal justice reform efforts. And so, I mean, this is really a, a well, we, we still need to see sweeping legislation passed, but this is something where uh, 
these are relationships formed over Bible studies in the Senate. Uh, I mean, this is this is the power of Christ and the gospel moving among people of influence, and so we should be grateful to God for that. The second thing I'd say is, you know, uh, one of the one of the primary challenges facing uh, uh, the formerly incarcerated reentering society is that they can't find places of welcome. And if the church can be as it should be, a place of welcome, if your, if your church has job clubs so that those who are flourishing vocationally in your church uh, are able to meet and vouch for the, the recently incarcerated to their network, to potential employers, uh, to take responsibility for brothers and sisters who are trying to, trying to make it. That can be a very valuable thing. The problem is folks uh, getting out of prison, uh, they try as hard as they can, but just there's no, there's no grease on the wheels. They just can't, as much as they try to move, nothing is moving for them, and the church can, can help, help do that. Yeah, I'll say this real quick about that. Churches, um, if we are being the church, there's a lot of issues that are put before us, a lot of ways that we can help. And so often when we talk about prison ministry, we talk about the prisoner. But one of the things I heard you say was, what about the families who love God, who are trying to do the right thing, and the emotional support and spiritual support they may need to go through that tough time when their children uncles, cousins, whatever it may be, are, are incarcerated? How, how do we help the families, those who are being affected, not just emotionally, but financially? Because it costs a lot of money. To, you know, uh, and so the, the other piece I think is very important for churches is partnerships. And we mentioned that a little bit, is that the individual church may not be able to meet all the needs but there are organizations outside the church and the community that may be able to help. And so it's so important for churches to be able to partner with community organizations to be able to help make that happen, uh, as, as, as well as members within the church who just have a passion for meeting the different needs in the community. It may not all be met in this congregation, but there can be partnerships. I think we have one more uh, time. Okay. Well, I'll say, and to point, a problem isn't a problem until it becomes your problem. And the reason why Chuck Colson, a guy who comes from the, you know, the Nixon administration, cares about prison is because he went to prison. And he realized, like, hey, this ain't cool. <laughs> and so how do, we, um, how do we begin? And this is, once again, I'm going to drive it to something that I think that I have some expertise in is how are you viewing your work? Everybody in here, it, you're not policy wonks, you're not politicians, but everybody in here works a nine to five. Some of you may even have the power and the leverage to employ people. So how are you using those, those, those opportunities to employ people who may not, who, who come out of prison and they have that felony and they may not be able to, there's so many obstacles pressed up against them, right? So you have an opportunity not even only to be a light in a very spiritual sense, but in a practical, holistic sense, by having the power to influence and employ people, and then use that, and then to have patience with these people to help train them and to uh, uh, form them in a way that brings dignity. And I know there are organizations that are present, uh, like Jobs for Life, who do things like this. And so we don't have to reinvent the wheel in our churches. How do we connect with people who are already doing the good job and learn from them and say, how can I connect with like a Jobs for Life and help employ people who, um, who, who I know need jobs and opportunities? 
Thank you so much. Yeah, we have to wrap things up. Thank you so much for the questions. Um, we have people waiting in the lobby, excited about uh, the next phase uh, of our event. Uh, we do want you to continue to send in those questions. Uh, so please tweet us, uh, hit us up on Facebook. Uh, we would love to continue to help you uh, learn more about these issues. So uh, let's thank our church politics uh, podcast here. Yeah, I would just close out by saying, hey, listen to the podcast. These are the conversations we're having all the time. It's church politics. You can find it on um, you can find it on iTunes, 4th District, a whole different. And thank you for the 4th District. Anybody know about 4th District? They've been a great host of our, our website. I want to say this, though. As we leave, let's make sure in 2018 that we're focused on compassion and conviction in our politics that we're fe- focused on passion and conviction in our politics. On, 20, on February 23rd, we have an event at Greater Piney Grove Baptist Church with Tony Evans, where we're be- going to be talking about frontline discipleship. I hope you are all there. Thank you for coming out. One thing as we leave, we're about to get ready to march. Obviously, we conduct ourselves as Christians, okay? So when we march, we're all about aspiration. We're, we're going to have a lot of fun, but let's keep it that way. As we go out, there's pizza and stuff out there. Keep it out there. Please do not bring it back in here. We got to make sure that we kind of keep it moving. We don't want to get that in the sanctuary. So we really appreciate you guys. Everybody have a good time. We're about to go march. I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants. It's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.